noted Geller is a Herbert H. Goldenberg Professor of Economics at Brown's University and the founding thinker behind the Unified Growth Theory, which seeks to uncover the fundamental causes of development, prosperity, and inequality over the entire span of human history. He has shared the insight of his lifetime's work in this field at some of the most prestigious lectures around the globe and has now distilled those discoveries into the journey of humanity, which is published in 30 languages worldwide. Professor Odette Galore, welcome to One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So we've been enjoying your very accessible but complex book, The Journey of Humanity, The Origins of Wealth and Equality. I believe you read a brief passage to give listeners an introduction. So The Journey of Humanity explores the evolution of human societies since the emergence of Homo sapiens in Africa nearly 300,000 years ago. It resolves two of the most fundamental mysteries that surround this journey. A mystery of growth, namely what are the roots of the dramatic transformation in living standards in the past 200 years after hundreds of thousands of years of near stagnation, and the mystery of inequality, namely what is the origin of the vast inequality in living standards across countries and regions of the world. Ever since the development of the first stone cutting tool, technological advancement failed to generate long-term betterment in the material well-being of the population. Technological progress unfailingly generated a larger population, mandating that the bounty of progress had to be divided among growing number of souls. Innovations foster economic prosperity for a few generations, but ultimately, population growth, broad living conditions back towards subsistence levels. For millennia, the wheels of change, the reinforcing interplay between technological progress and the size and the composition of the human population, turned at an ever-increasing pace, until eventually a tipping point was reached, unleashing the rapid technological progress of the Industrial Revolution. The increasing demand for educated workers who could navigate this rapidly changing technological environment provided parents with a greater incentive to invest in the education of their children instead of giving birth to additional ones, triggering the fertility decline. Living standards improve without being swiftly counterbalanced by population growth and thus began the long-term rise in human prosperity. However, when prosperity skyrocketed in recent centuries, it did so earlier in some parts of the world, triggering a second major transformation, the emergence of immense inequality across societies, institutional, cultural, geographical, and societal characteristics that emerge in the distant past propel societies on their distinct historical trajectories, influencing the timing of their escape from the epoch of stagnation and contributed to the gap in the wealth of nations. It really helped us understand so many things. And as I say, in this accessible way, full of beautiful metaphors of the time machine and so many others. But I guess first I should ask, what are the fundamental mysteries that the journey of humanity attempts to resolve? So the journey of humanity addresses two of the most fundamental mysteries that surrounds the journey of humanity. The mystery of growth, namely what are the roots of this dramatic transformation in living standards that occurred in the past 200 years after literally hundreds of thousands of years of stagnation? To put it differently, why living standards increased 14-fold in the past 200 years after 300,000 years of stagnation, and why life expectancy has nearly doubled in the past 200 years after fluctuating within a narrow range of 25 to 40 over most of human existence. And the second mystery is the mystery of inequality, namely, what are the roots of the vast inequality in living standards across the globe? And why is it the case that inequality in the world economy increased so dramatically in the past 
200 years. And really that's at the heart of your unified growth theory. Indeed. So the basic premise of unified growth theory is that much of the inequality that we observe today across the globe is originated in factors that operated in the distant past, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and even tens of thousands of years ago. And as a result of it, the basic premise of unified growth theory is that if we would like to understand inequality today, we have to form a unified theory that will link events that occurred in the distant past to events that are occurring today. So rather than developing a theory that would fit the modern world in isolation from a theory that would fit, say, the Malthusian world, unified growth theory attempts to understand the process of development in its entirety, to develop a theory, a single theory that explained the progression of humanity since the emergence of Homo sapiens 300,000 years ago in Africa till the present. So as you say, it's really critical for us to understand forces of the distant past, to understand the vast inequality and the wealth of nations. For those who don't understand, you mentioned Malthus as you contrast it with uh, Malthusian theory. Just explain for those who don't know Malthus. According to Malthus, I mean, uh, and according to a sort of the reincarnation of Malthus, if you wish, over most of human existence, when technology advanced, ultimately it was counterbalanced by population growth. And as a result of it, income per capita remained unchanged over a prolonged period of time. And consequently, during the, what we define today as the Malthusian epoch, which is 99.9% .9 of human existence, technologically advanced societies were not richer, but simply had more people. Namely, technology was converted into more people rather than into richer people. And how did you begin on this journey to want to understand the forces of economics and history and civilization, going back to your upbringing in Jerusalem? So I was born and raised in Jerusalem, and naturally being a resident of Jerusalem implies that it is really inescapable to realize that much of what we see today is rooted in elements that operated in the distant past, namely religiosity, ethnicity, inequality, and human behavior today in the context of life in Jerusalem is originated in events that occurred as early as 3,000 years ago. And this realization made me understand that in fact, if we would like to understand inequality across the globe today, we have to realize that much of this inequality that is based, as I said, on human behavior, on ethnicity, on religiosity, on fractionalization, polarization, is originated in forces that operated in the distant past. So this was one important force that uh, caused me to be interested in the importance of the distant past in the understanding of economic development today. But in addition, I had great affinity as a student to the field of discrete dynamical systems, mathematical field of discrete dynamical system, and understanding of how initial conditions within mathematical systems affect the long-run position of these systems. I was particularly intrigued by economic systems or by systems as a whole that were characterized by multiple equilibria, namely how initial conditions may take societies into one equilibrium rather than another. And therefore, combining these elements, my personal history as a resident of Jerusalem, as a person that was born in Jerusalem and raised in Jerusalem on the one hand, and at the same time, my affinity to the mathematical field of dynamical system led me to the exploration of this important relationship between conditions that operated in the distant past and economic development today. And one thing on all of our minds is we can't have endless growth. Is it possible to harness the promise of technological innovations required to mitigate the climate crisis while also committing to degrowth? In other words, is economic growth compatible with environmental preservation? So that's a very important question. And my viewpoint is that, in fact, 
to economic growth is compatible with uh, environmental preservations, provided that economic growth will be based predominantly on policies that will bring about uh, a fertility decline. So my research on the subject suggests that if in fact we can reduce population growth in the world by about 1%, we can have an increase in the growth of income per capita by 7% without changing carbon emission. Namely, policies such as gender equality and, uh, and higher return to human capital that will foster fertility decline can bring about both economic prosperity and at the same time, a decline in carbon emission. And this is very important because naturally when we think about policies that are designed to reduce carbon emission, we see the tendencies of societies not to be willing to cooperate because naturally they would like others to take them these measures rather than themselves because these measures are costly. But the measures that I propose, namely measures that would induce fertility decline is a win-win situation for all societies. It will generate, as I said, higher economic growth, lower carbon emission, and will benefit each individual society it seemed quite uh, radical just to promote that. But of course, we have to promote the other clean technologies. We have to go forward to net zero. Education, of course, is, is hugely important. And so uh, you're very hopeful. The whole tone of the journey of humanity is very optimistic within reason. And in terms of our capitalist system, you analyze the huge gap in incomes and inequalities. Can we get to a more sustainable society in the current capitalist system, say in the US? Or do you look to other you know, Nordic models or what can we learn from other economic systems in terms of creating a fair, more equitable society? It depends very much on your definition of the capitalist system, I think to a large extent. The system is operating both in the U.S. society and in Europe. And, and naturally, it's simply a different version of the same system. One of them is more humane capitalism, and the other one is perhaps more extreme form of capitalism. But if I think about capitalism as a form in which basically the private sector and the invisible hand is operating more uh, massively, I think that, in fact, that's as we learned uh, in, the, in the course of human history, this is a very successful system. This does not imply that the social safety nets that we see in Europe are not required. It is simply implied that thinking about an economic system in which individuals are operating based on incentives and in which governments are not overly involved is very important. But removing any involvement of the government is, of course, inappropriate because we live in a world in which there are tremendous externalities, namely individuals are polluting and they do not take into account the impact of their pollution on others and on the environment. Societies are polluting and they do not take into account the impact of their pollution on other societies. And as a result of it, we need to live in a world in which some involvements of government uh, is necessary. Some involvements of the international community is essential for maintaining a sustainable growth and maintaining the environment in which we live. This does not imply that capitalism is not a proper system. As I said, it's not an extreme form of capitalism. Thinking about an extreme form of capitalism in which governments are not involved will not be appropriate because we live in a world in which there are tremendous negative externalities that are generated by individuals and by governments. And we need to make sure that individuals are internalizing these negative externalities, taking them into account, and as a result of it, we live in a more sustainable planet. Again, capitalism is certainly the form that we should cherish broadly speaking, but at the same time, we should modify an extreme form of capitalism. We should live in a society in which 
governments are more involved in regulating firms, in regulating industries, and the international community is involved in regulating the behavior of nations that are polluting more than other ones. Again, it's an intermediate step, but as I said, I wouldn't go into the extreme in which we move from a system in which uh, capitalism is operating and economic incentives are very important for the operation of individuals and society. Going off of that, I wanted to know what you think of the recent shift from an industrial economy to a more tech-based economy in many countries, and if you think that will help aid environmental preservation, either both in policies or within societies. So if we think about human history as a whole, and I would like to restrict myself to, the, to my realms of expertise, we see that in the course of human history, technological transition and technological transformation are taking place. So at a certain point in human history, we see the gradual transition, say, from an agricultural-based society to industrial-based society. And this transition is not necessarily a smooth transition. We see that, in fact, the landed aristocracy that is naturally not being the beneficiary of this transition is trying to block this transition, trying to block investment in education so as to prevent the exodus of workers from the rural sector into the urban sector and so as to prevent the decline in their rental rate. But ultimately, since industrialization is beneficial for the economy as a whole, this transition is taking place. Now, if we think about similar transition in the course of the 20th century, we see very similar phenomena. Naturally, we see the emergence of, say, the information technology revolution at a certain point. And as a result of it, despite the fact that the old industrial sector is not benefiting from this transition, the transition is ultimately taking place. And again, all entrepreneurs, all the capital owners are not necessarily supportive of this transition, but ultimately the transition is taking place because it is beneficial for uh, the society as a whole. In this respect, we see in the course of human history, we see one after another transitions of this sort. It starts with the agricultural revolution, the transition of societies from the hunter-gatherer stage to agriculture. We see it in the transition from agriculture to industry. We see it in the transition from old industry to modern industry. And in this respect, I think that any time in which technological progress will generate prosperity for the world as a whole, we will see ultimately that these technologies are being adopted with some delays because naturally there are interest groups that will try to block this transition. But these interest groups will not be sufficiently powerful if in fact the benefit for humanity is so large so as to, to make it profitable for larger and larger segments of societies. So in this respect, I'm not overly concerned about the possibility that progress will be prevented by interest groups. As I said, ultimately, progress will be implemented despite the presence of these interest groups because it will benefit uh, societies. Your research talked about the new challenge between the entrenched land elite and the emerging capitalist elite, and I was wondering if you could expand a bit on that. When you think about the transition from agriculture to industry, this is a very complicated transition because prior to industrialization, the dominating class is in fact the landed aristocracy. And the landed aristocracy is generating its profits from land and from workers that are operating in this land. Now, the emergence of industrialization is representing a threat to this entrenched landed aristocracy, the sense that naturally the outflight of migrants from the rural sector, from of workers from the rural sector to the to the urban sector, implies that rental rates on the land of the landed aristocracy will decline, and consequently, the landed aristocracy is not very pleased with these processes. 
So they would like, if possible, to restrict the migration of workers from the rural sector into the urban sector. And how do they do so? By either creating labor arrangements that prevent mobility, or alternatively, preventing the workers or individuals in the rural sector from acquiring education. And why is it so? Because education in this stage is predominantly more complementary to the industrial production than to the agricultural production. And consequently, by preventing education from workers, the landed aristocracy is able to delay the transition into industry and is able to delay industrialization. But as I said, the important element to realize is that since the benefits for both workers and the capital owners is so large, in fact, the capital owners and labor are in some sense unified in their support for public education, in the support for the emergence of the industrial sector. And ultimately, we see the shift from agricultural society into industrial society, despite the opposition of the landed aristocracy. And a few questions seem to follow on from that, but you spoke there about preventing mobility and there's that's a class mobility. But I was wondering if you've encountered yet, because one of the arguments in your unified growth theory is also that there's a sweet spot of growth where you have a certain amount of genetic diversity, but not too much that creates clannish behavior and conflict. And this balanced with a certain amount of homogeneity and conformism. So I was wondering if you'd countered any one political groups that might misinterpret your theory as we think about certain political movements that make America great again, the Brexit, et cetera. Yes, absolutely. So, so I think that the issue of diversity is very important. And I should clarify that it's a broad notion of diversity. It's mostly cultural diversity. But when we think about diversity and economic development, diversity is associated with conflicting effects on productivity. On the positive side, diversity is associated with cross-fertilization of ideas. And as a result of it, it is beneficial for innovations and beneficial for productivity. So societies that are more diverse are benefiting from complementarity of ideas, cross-fertilization of ideas, more innovations, and more economic development. On the other hand, more diverse societies tend to be less trustful, less in agreement about the desirable public goods, and as a result of it, tend to be more conflicted. So more diverse societies tend to be less cohesive socially. And consequently, this implies that in the course of human history, societies that had a sweet spot level of diversity performed better than otherwise. So if we think about human history, say the Middle Ages, societies that were optimally diverse were societies in Southeast Asia, the Chinese society, the Korean society, the Japanese societies. Now, typically when we think about diversity, we don't think about those societies are as optimally diverse. But remember, this is a different time period in which technological progress is relatively small and consequently the benefit of homogeneity in terms of social cohesiveness dominated the potential adverse effect of homogeneity on innovativeness. And consequently, these societies had the upper hand. But when we think about the time of industrialization, we see that in fact, it is Europe that is taking off first rather than China. And why is it the case? Because Europe is in fact very fluid culturally. And this cultural fluidity permits the European population to adopt different cultural traits that are conducive to economic development. The scientific revolution is taking place in Europe. Enlightenment is taking place in Europe. And ultimately this fosters the type of what I would call growth enhancing cultural traits that are very important for the emergence of the industrial revolution. Now, importantly, as we move into the contemporary world, 
what we see is that the virtues of diversity are becoming larger and larger and larger. So to a large extent, my argument is celebrating the virtues of diversity. In what sense? It suggests that more diverse societies in the course of human history are having greater and greater productivity. And why is it so? Because we are moving into an era in which technological progress is much more rapid than before. And consequently, cultural fluidity is very important in permitting societies to adapt to this rapidly changing technological environment. And consequently, what we see in the course of the 20th century, what we will see in the future, is that societies that are more diverse will have the upper end in the context of productivity. But in addition, what we see in Western societies today, and ultimately in other societies as well, is the understanding that diversity is associated with social non-cohesiveness. And consequently, if you think about the education system that we constructed in the past decades, and we should certainly construct in the coming decades too, this education system is designed largely to assure social cohesiveness. Namely, we educate our children to be more tolerant, more respectful for, for difference, more respectful for other ethnic groups, and this mitigates the potential cost of diversity and allows us to benefit more from the benefits of diversity in, in terms of innovations and cross-fertilization of ideas. As I said, what we see in the course of human history is the sweet spot level of diversity is gradually increasing. Namely, societies that are increasingly more diverse will benefit more in uh, in the decades and in the centuries to come. On that point of how we can reform or improve our education models, you have beyond encouraging more social cohesiveness, you have written about how we might move towards education models that are promoting critical thinking over vocational education models. Although I find that there's a lot of interest in vocational education models because people want to know what they're doing beyond university. Indeed. So one of the important lessons from my book, The Journey of Humanity, is that in order to alleviate inequality across the globe, in order to see greater equality across nations, we have to design policies, predominantly education policies, that will be respectful of the individual country, the history of this individual country, the geography of this individual country, the colonial history of this individual country, and uh, uh, the geographical endowment that is, that is behind the scene. Namely, the argument is that one policy does not fit all nations at once. If you look at the trajectory of each individual country, this trajectory is based on a very particular set of conditions that ultimately generated certain institutions, certain cultural traits. And consequently, if we would like to mitigate inequality, we have to target these elements very profoundly. So let me give you a few examples. But suppose that we think about two societies that are residing in different, say, corners of the world, it can be within a continent or across continents. And suppose that these societies were exposed to different initial geographical conditions. In one society, crops that are native to the location were conducive to agricultural investment. And consequently, in these societies, people were engaged in planting and ultimately harvesting. Namely, they were engaged in planning for the future. They learn how, in fact, to be future-oriented, how to plant, how to and how to wait for the harvesting. Suppose there is another society in which the geographical conditions are such that they're not conducive for planting and harvesting. And as a result of it, people were not trained by nature to be future-oriented. This implies that these two societies will have different degree of future-oriented minds. One society will be forward-looking and other societies more short-term oriented. And why is it so important? Naturally, future-oriented mindset is associated with education decisions, 
saving decisions, technological adoption, and economic growth. And consequently, it is really the most important cultural trait in the context of economic development. So what does it imply? It implies that education policy in societies in which nature did not generate an environment that is conducive for future-oriented mindset will have to train children to be more future-oriented than otherwise. Whereas in societies in which the environment was conducive for your future-oriented mindset, in fact, education or the curriculum should be geared towards other elements that are conducive to development. So this is one example in which the same resources that are channeled towards education can be prioritizing different elements. In one society, the priority should be given, say, to long-term orientation. In another society, perhaps gender equality, or perhaps thinking outside of the box, or perhaps generating social cohesiveness in a place where it is missed. So again, the important element is that we have to understand the history of each individual country, the geography of each individual country, and consequently to target education in such a way that it can propel traits that are very important for the future prosperity of these societies. It's interesting to think about, because edu- often in education, we think about now educating for the individual and their particular traits. And so it's a new way of thinking for me to educate for a, a whole society, to try to think about what a society's traits are and how they can all be best served by the education model. And then you outlined some of those biogeographical differences and how we're just thinking now when you're talking about certain farming communities or certain technologies, and you spoke about, or you wrote about how plows were used. Just just outline that difference between Northern and Southern Europe. Indeed. So, So when we think about cultural traits, and as we said earlier, cultural traits can be growth enhancing or perhaps growth retarding, and they emerge in the history of each society in a way that was designed to complement the environment in which people operate. So for instance, one important cultural trait is the division of labor across gender lines. And this is an hypothesis that was advanced by Esther Bosserup in 1970. It turns out that in societies in which the plow was adopted earlier, in which the plow could be adopted, gender bias emerged and persisted to the present. And why is it so? So the plow requires upper body strengths. And as a result, it gave a comparative advantage in agriculture, in agricultural cultivation to men over women. And what we see that in fact, those societies that adopted the plow earlier, those societies that adopted the plow uh, in general, are societies that today on average have lower labor force participation of women than otherwise. So again, events that occurred in the distant past, thousands of years ago, the adoption of the plow brought about certain division of labor along gender lines. And ultimately this division of labor persisted over time. And in a way that affects labor force participation of women We see it in the context of gender, we see it in the context of long-term orientation, we see it in the context of trust, we see it in the context of cooperation. You've discussed how many of us are becoming more climate literate, we're turned on to what we need to do in terms of sustainability. How could we become more economically literate? It wasn't something that was emphasized, certainly not in my education. So education is very important to think about the journey of humanity as a whole, what ultimately triggered this new era of sustained economic growth and enormous prosperity in the human population is precisely investment in human capital and education. Now, characteristic of this education is the fact that to a large extent, this was education that allowed individuals to navigate this rapidly changing technological environment. Now, as we move into the future and we face new challenges, and one of them is the challenge about the environment, education becomes instrumental in assuring that individuals understand 
the science behind climate change, and in addition, understand the impact of each individual on environmental degradation. So in this respect, I think that again, if we think about the design of the curriculum, the design of the curriculum should be such that certain elements should be emphasized more than otherwise. We see recently, for instance, in the context of the, the Russian-Ukraine war, that notions of liberties are critical to assure and to deter totalitarian regimes from affecting the rest of us. So again, one should emphasize the notion of freedom, the importance of democracy, the importance of inclusive institutions. At the same time, given our concern about the environment and given the fact that the environment is mostly affected by externalities, by our behavior that is not considerate of the environment. Again, we have to emphasize and re-emphasize the importance of the environment for each of us and, and how we can, in fact, reduce and mitigate the current level of carbon emission. And more generally, we can mitigate the erosion in the environment. So these are two important elements, as I said, that I view as central in the decades to come. One of them, education that is geared towards environmental preservation. And the second one, education that is geared towards the understanding of the virtues of freedom and understanding of the virtues of democracy and inclusive institutions. And in the journey of humanity, how does that fit into the long arc of economic thought? So as I said before, when we think about the journey of humanity and the centrality of education in the transition from stagnation to growth, and it is indeed a critical component of the journey of humanity, particularly at this critical juncture in which societies are moving from stagnation to growth, but it will continue to be an important element of the journey of humanity. So as we move into an era, in which technology is evolving more and more rapidly, education will become important. But in fact, the nature of education will gradually change. If at the moment we see some societies that are investing perhaps in vocational education, naturally as we move into an era in which technology is advancing very rapidly, it is quite apparent that certain type of occupations will become obsolete more rapidly than otherwise. And consequently, the importance of education will be such that we will need to invest in education that is flexible enough, education that will allow individuals to be more adaptable, to be able to shift from one sector from another to another, from one occupation to another, so as to, to meet the challenges of this rapidly changing technological environment. So this is a great grounding for understanding how we might plan our futures. And I know that your latest research grant is looking into this. We did want to get your opinion on the future of cities. Right. So again, making predictions about the future is relatively difficult. Indeed, I'm at the moment engaged in a research agenda that is trying to predict uh, the future pace of technological progress, the future pace of population growth, and the future prosperity of humanity. But the research at the moment is very preliminary, so I prefer not to speculate about the outcome of this research. Uh, broadly speaking, if I would have to speculate about the trajectory of humanity in the context of the coming century, I think what is really important to note is that we are living in an era in which technology is evolving very rapidly. And rapid technological progress is naturally associated typically with greater inequality. In the sense that rapid technological progress requires investment in education. And since not all individuals are investing in education in equal fashion, this is bound to generate inequality in society. In addition, rapid technological progress implies that certain traits are more complementary to the technological environment than otherwise. And therefore, individuals that will have these traits will be much more prosperous than others. And as a result of it, we want to sort of live in a more humane society. We want to live in a more stable society. 
This implies that we have to design our policies in such a way the two important elements will be emphasized. The first one is equality of opportunity. Namely, we have to assure that each member of society, each individual in society, will be able to fulfill her potential or his potential to a full extent, regardless of the place where you were born, regardless of parental wealth, regardless of the type of education that is present in your location. We have to assure that we have perfect equality of opportunities. This is important morally, because as I said, we will move into an era in which technological progress will reward individuals that are more educated and individuals that have certain skills that are complementary to this environment. And therefore, morally, we would like individuals to have a fair chance to participate in this process. But beyond that, even in terms of economic efficiency, assuring economic equality of opportunity will assure better allocation of talents across occupations and greater prosperity in society. So this is one important element in terms of policy. We have to assure equality of opportunities, both because of moral reasons and because of economic efficiency. But in addition, we have to realize that this rapid technological progress, as I said, will complement certain type of traits and not others. And consequently, those individuals that are not as well endowed with these traits should be provided with a safety net that will allow them to flourish within this society. Namely, the society must adopt more humane policies so as to assure that the prosperity is shared more evenly across individual society without preventing the economic incentives from operating as they should. Namely, we should maintain economic incentives, but we should be aware of the fact that technological progress will demand certain type of traits and not others. And not all individuals have necessarily these traits. And consequently, we need to be respectful of these individuals. We need to support these individuals without distorting economic incentives. The rapid technological progress as you say, it's suited for some more than others. But I feel that, and we get a lot of feedback from our participating students, that even if they're adept at the technologies, because technology is outpacing our natural rhythms, people are becoming addicted to their devices, aren't adapting as fast as our technologies are accelerating growth. So there is an argument for deceleration in the sense that it accelerates beyond our human nature. And so I don't know what your feelings are about that. And even though our society might be geared towards technology, something in us is still nourished by nature or the spiritual or the arts. So I'm, I'm certainly respectful for this view of the world, but at the same time, I think that progress, and I think that the world has witnessed progress in, in the past few centuries, that was instrumental in alleviating poverty and in, in assuring that people can fulfill their dreams, that people can, can cherish freedom and can live in a prosperous way. And what is really important to note, and perhaps people don't fully internalize, think about the world 250 years ago. This was a world in which one force of newborn did not reach their first birthday, and nearly half of them did not reach their reproductive age. You think about the world today, in any corner of the world, in any society across the world, in any neighborhood across the world, the death of a single child is an unusual tragedy. This is an enormous progress that we made. And I think technological progress and progress that can be foreseen in the context of the next century is going to ultimately reduce inequality and reduce poverty in a way that could be defined as progress. So yes, we perhaps, I mean, to reach a stage in which technological progress is so rapid that uh, we are not fully adapted to this environment, and perhaps at a certain point, it will make some of us worse off. But as a whole, based on my 
understanding of the past 250 years, it appears to me that this progress is very important for humanity as a whole and ultimately will make humanity, broadly speaking, more prosperous than otherwise. And on the issue of AI, what are your thoughts just as a, a citizen about AI and how we can program it to have a humanity and a set of controls? So there are a few issues that are related to AI. So one concern that is uh, broadly heard is about uh, the displacement of individuals by machines. And I think that this is perhaps overly emphasized in the sense that, I mean, we saw similar technological changes in the past. We saw that, in fact, workers were not very pleased with the process of industrialization in the very early stages. And we remember the anecdotes of the Luddites that are destroying machines in fear of losing their jobs. I think that overall, in the short run, we will see the displacement of workers by these machines but ultimately, we will see the creation of new type of jobs. And consequently, in the long run, I do not anticipate that, that artificial intelligence will, in fact, displace workers. It will simply change the nature of occupations and it will change the way that uh, society is, is configured, but not necessarily in a way that will be harmful for individuals. And in terms of your view on the landmark of history, when you completed your book, The Journey of Humanity, and you're going really into the beginning of our civilization to understand our place in it. So when you come out of that, you finished your book and you're an ordinary citizen in the world and you're doing your shopping and turning on the news and seeing droughts or mass shootings or wildfires. What is that like, that kind of sudden time travel to the present and reality when you've been living in the world of reality, but theory? So I think that I do make the distinction between what I will define as sort of uh, short-run turmoil and the devastating events that are occurring, unfortunately, too often in the course of human history and the grand arc of human history. And part of what I argue in, in my book is that when we think about the journey of humanity, it appears that enormous events that occurred in the course of human history, devastating events, did not derail humanity from its long march. If you think about, say, the 14th century and, and the Black Death, the Black Death is decimating 40% of the European population uh, in the middle of the 14th century. And nevertheless, humanity is recovering from this with incredible resolve and, in fact, stronger than otherwise. Technology is adapting, the population is adapting, and the march of humanity is not being derailed by the Black Death. If you think about the 20th century and the atrocities in the first part of the 20th century, think about World War I, World War II, or the Spanish flu, or the Great Depression, these are all incredibly devastating events. And naturally, every individual that is living through these tragedies is, uh, is affected tremendously by these events. But when we look at the grand arc of, uh, of the journey of humanity, it appears that the march of humanity is not being uh, affected by it. Yes, there are short-run fluctuations, but if we think about the trend, the trend is not being affected by it. Now, when COVID-19 appeared, again, we see this emergence of gloom about the, the fact that humanity is going to change in a way that we have not seen for decades and centuries. But here we are today, and in fact, we are beyond it. I mean, if I would uh, discuss it with you two years ago, the state of gloom would be much more severe than it is today. Or if we think about the Russian-Ukraine war, again, incredible tragedy for the Ukrainian people. And to a large extent, this appears to many as a shock that can derail humanity from its long-run march. But I do not share this viewpoint. Again, I think this is a short-run phenomena, a terrible phenomena, but ultimately humanity will emerge from it with greater strength and resolve. And in this particular dimension, greater understanding of the virtues of freedom and the importance of our willingness to fight for our freedom. 
And I think that what we discovered during this crisis is that, in fact, civil liberties, individual liberties are very important to individuals, very important for nations. And this was, in fact, a source of unity in different segments of the world. If you think about the U.S. society, for instance, I mean, the U.S. society is as polarized as, as, polarized as it can be. But the Ukraine crisis unified uh, the, the society, at least in, in this particular dimension, because it was very clear that we are battling our liberties. And this was true in Europe as, as well. Think about the position of Sweden, the position of Finland. Their change in their historical position suggests that every individual nation that is not controlled at the moment by a totalitarian regime realize that freedom is at stake, freedom is in, in danger, and consequently humanity emerge out of this crisis with greater strengths and results. So overall, my view and my perspective is hopeful, is optimistic, but not naive. We will be affected in the long run by these tragedies from time to time, but it appears that each of these strategies is ultimately generating greater resolve for a better future for us. And I usually think about teachers that have been important to you, life lessons that have been important to you, and the kind of world that we're leaving the next generation, the kind of world you want to live in. What would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? So one of the important lessons from my book, The Journey of Humanity, is that if we would like to participate in the design of our future, we have to have a better understanding of our past. Because, in fact, the past is allowing us to understand the hurdles that are faced by each society in their attempt to move into prosperity. And by realizing the forces of the past, we can design a better future for all of us. Again, emphasis should be in a better understanding of the journey of humanity as a whole, the journey of humanity as is applicable for each individual nation, and how, in fact, the knowledge of the past can be used in order to, to bring about a better future for all of us, for humanity as a whole. Well, you've certainly given us so much to think about. So thank you, Oded Galor, for your invaluable contribution and helping us understand the journey of humanity to help us analyze the forces of stagnation and technological growth so that we might diagnose and create public policy for a better future. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. It's a pleasure. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Jamie Abina with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Jamie Abina. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Chrysler and Megan Eggenborg. The music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.